Welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And today we will have a, a very special guest with us, Elishar Faisulayev, who is a political scientist, psychologist, uh, professor, scholar, teacher, negotiation uh, professor, uh, negotiation trainer, and also a former diplomat. Uh, we will talk about uh, diplomacy and negotiation. My name is Remy Smolinski and welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. Alisher, it's great to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Remy. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a great honor. Um, Alisher, um, you're a diplomat, negotiator, uh, scholar, professor. I would like us uh, to start a little bit about with the link between um, uh, between di diplomacy and negotiation. It seems to be obvious, but I was wondering how you felt, how you lived this link in your uh, in your career as uh, the ambassador uh, to uh, the United Kingdom, Benelux countries, NATO, and the EU. Right. 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 And NATO as well. So how did you live? How did you live the link between negotiation and diplomacy? Um, 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 how was it embedded in your daily work as a diplomat? Well, uh, I was born in Tashkent uh, and I have a, a scholarly background. I have a degrees in psychology and also in political science, but I never thought that I would become a diplomat. But when we've got independence, so government, uh, we had a very few diplomats in Uzbekistan and government asked people like me and some other scholars uh, with some foreign language command to join uh, the government and serve the country as a diplomat. Uh, first, I said uh, no, uh, because I had no idea what is diplomacy and I, I had some other plans. But then when I started to think about the future of my country, some challenges, I said yes, and I joined and I spent 10 years, 10 years in diplomacy. But uh, then I came back to academia. So now I'm not a, an acting diplomat. So I was a diplomat. I was an ambassador, uh, but now I'm a scholar. So when you ask me about a combination of my scholarship and uh, um, activity as a trainer and a teacher and expert in negotiation, so you need to know a little bit about my background on the one hand. So, uh, but on the other hand, I think it's a perfectly uh, good combination when you have a kind of uh, background in uh, psychology, in political science, in diplomacy, and experience in teaching and training. So it's uh, it could be a very good combination to bring all these aspects, scholarly aspects, uh, diplomatic aspects, and teaching, training aspects. So now I try to combine uh, this... Uh, so, uh, what else? How? Uh, if you ask how, uh, please go ahead with your questions. 
Yes, absolutely. I was wondering, you know, so we, you were thrown by the, by the government, uh, with your consent, obviously, into the deep waters of diplomacy. Yes, and I was wondering how to how you um, how you um, how you tackled this issue. So how how to become a skilled a skilled diplomat, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if, uh, especially if we uh, if we if we just embark on this journey. Well. Uh, uh... Different countries, of course, have uh, different some practices of uh, preparation, promotion of diplomats. Most uh, countries in the world, especially in Europe now, they have only uh, so-called career diplomats. So you, uh, after graduation from university, you enter diplomatic service and uh, step by step you become a diplomat senior diplomat ambassador for many after many years but uh, some countries especially united states is famous with the appointment of political appointees as ambassadors so uh, we uh, could see that there are different uh, paths to become ambassador but in our case uh, in case of newly uh, established uh, state so we just uh, needed to have someone who could do some kinds of work. So we started from scratch. So I am uh, very happy that uh, I spent some time in diplomacy and helped to build up uh, our diplomatic service, uh, diplomatic missions abroad, again from scratch. So of course, a uh, lot of things were quite new. So uh, a lot of things I've learned, not just me, but some others at that time. But now in Uzbekistan and many other former Soviet republics, newly independent countries, we already have these uh, career diplomats who devoted themselves uh, to diplomacy. They think about uh, becoming diplo diplomat ambassadors. But uh, we uh, faced a lot of interesting, very a challenging time and uh, we had to learn for example just to tell you one little story to imagine for you to just to uh, uh, to imagine what kinds of situation we had some time ago when i arrived in brussels in 1995 to open up our embassy in brussels um, we had no any banking connections to transfer of banking. So we had some money with us, cash we brought. <laughs> we immediately went to one bank. We said, well, uh, we are diplomats. We want to open an account and put our money here. And they asked, which country? I said, Uzbekistan. Pakistan? What country? So, and uh, they've been very suspicious and they didn't open any account. Uh, we went to another bank, we went to another bank, and we had a problem with that. Then I went to foreign office, asked them, would you please help us to open an account? And they gave us a letter that uh, they represent officially a country. So please help them to open an account. So finally, we've been able to open an account. But you see, 
what kinds of time we <laughs> experienced, they uh, copied all our monies and I had to sign all them. In any case, so to check this is a real money or not. So we faced a lot of these kinds of problem uh, when we started our diplomatic work from zero, nothing. So no any embassy, no any premises, no any car, no nothing from zero. And of course that was very challenging, but very, very good experience and a lot of learning. So you, it's a kind of on-spot learning and you, Sometimes you can learn a lot in through when you go through these kinds of experiences. So it's a it's a very good uh, training uh, for diplomats. So you you learn, and I guess uh, because the, the essence of diplomacy it's a it's a mostly social work, of course, analytical work, some many different aspects. But you need to be communicator. You need to analyze, you need to observe, you need to deliver some message. You need to make a contact and communicate, negotiate, have a conversation, and you will be quite all right. <laughs> Thank you, Elisha, for sharing those uh, those uh, uh, early time uh, stories of uh, uh, Uzbekistan, Uzbek diplomacy. I was wondering, you know, throughout your 10 years, uh, 10 years of your diplomatic career, yeah? What were, have you experienced negotiations that uh, required from you, you know, the, 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 the best of your negotiation skills? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, something that you look back with, with a smile, uh, with a sense of accomplishment. Uh, uh, any stories come to your mind maybe uh, as we speak? Right. Well, uh, of course, uh, when you spent so many years in diplomacy, I spent 10 years you, of course, obviously uh, will have a lot of different, difficult, different and difficult and funny different situations. But I'd like to uh, stress one element of diplomatic negotiations, which is usually in if we discuss state-based diplomacy, international diplomacy, I mean, diplomacy between states, uh, not just diplomacy in everyday life, but uh, official diplomacy. When negotiators are official representatives of states. So uh, we need to understand that uh, you as a diplomat, as an individual, you are just very one important, but a small part of the whole process. Uh, there is a state. For example, if in United Nations, somebody vote for something in United Nations uh, General Assembly, for example. It's not a person votes, it's a country uh, who votes, right? So there are countries, uh, when we say relationship between America and United States, it's not relationship just between individuals, but between states. So there is a state, then there is a states, uh, institutions or agencies like Minister of Foreign Affairs, then you as an individual who represent states on the field, you are a field player. So you could be extremely good as a negotiator, but without backing, without uh, some statehood, 
or organizational backing. You may be not very good, or you may have a weak state, but a very good negotiator. That would strengthen state. So I'll tell you maybe one or two stories uh, when maybe not very successful, but uh, which it seems to me may characterize one of the aspects of diplomatic negotiations. So you need to be very strategic. So uh, sometimes you may fail, but it is very important to uh, step in order to advance some of your interests and uh, to broaden perspectives and have a, a better perspective for future. Uh, I remember in uh, 1995-1996, uh, we negotiated with European Union. I was an ambassador to European Union and we negotiated an agreement, partnership, partnership and cooperation agreement with the European Union. That's a very good agreement, very complex agreement. There are some political, trade, economic, environmental, different aspects of that. And I wanted to present some more broader, some perspective and uh, to have some, how to say, more ambitious agreement. And uh, I said, why not to discuss a free trade agreement between Uzbekistan and the European Union? And they just laughed and said, well, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a time. Uh, by the way, we, we still don't have a free trade agreement, but uh, I think it was very important to push forward and to set up some goals. And next day I brought some letters between Amir Timur, who was a ruler of uh, uh, Nahar, uh, place where Uzbekistan now situated, one of our great uh, kings or rulers. Um, emperor. So, so he had a, in the, at the beginning of uh, 15th century, he had a correspondence between uh, Amar Timur and uh, several European kings, like Henry IV of England, King of England, and uh, Charles VI of France. And they discussed free trade between Tamerlan's empire and France and England, protecting uh, traders, all this stuff. And I said, look, our uh, great ancestors, they already discussed these things. Why not to discuss us, now, we, all these things? Well, they've been surprised. I uh, said, well, uh, maybe in the future. But uh, I believe, uh, of course, I didn't uh, succeed. It was not successful attempt from my side. But I believe it helped us to broaden some perspective. The same happened, for example, when I went to uh, European Investment Bank, AIB, and proposed, well, let's discuss a relationship with Uzbekistan. So I said, no, 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 no we don't have mandate. It's uh, too early. But now we already have a good relationship. The same with NATO. I said that it, it was mid-90s. Well, why not to discuss Afghanistan? Because it's a very worrying situation. So we need to discuss, we've been, we, we are a partner country, partner for, for peace country. So they said, no, 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 no. We don't discuss Afghanistan in NATO. So now, you know, NATO was a very big player there also. So the point is, even when you may fail, 
in diplomatic negotiator in negotiation as an individual, as a field player. But sometimes it's uh, uh, even uh, more important strategically when you put something ahead, uh, forward, and from time to time you are coming back again negotiate and putting a little bit more forward and again and again and again. So in fact, the diplomatic, one of the very important characteristics of diplomatic negotiations, it's this complexity. There are many, many aspects. So uh, many applications. So you need to take care of all of them and to be strategic, to think about the future. But for that, you need to prepare very well to go to the history as I did, for example, taking letters between kings uh, or think about uh, some possible future economic project. But again, preparation, preparation, preparation. That's one of the very important characteristics of diplomatic negotiation. Of course, any negotiation needs to have preparation, but in diplomacy, this is a very, especially very important. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alisher, for sharing this. Uh, absolutely amazing. Um, um, you published recently. You published. Uh, you published a book called "Diplomacy for Professionals and Everyone." Yeah? Right. And um, um, and I was wondering. Hey, that looks great. Uh, I still need to get one. Um, I, but I did uh, go through uh, your preface and right. did uh, look at the ta table of contents, uh, content and found it super interesting. And I was wondering, you know, who is this book? What is this book all about? And who is it for? Is it for diplomats? Is it for everyone? Uh, what is it all about? And who is it for? All right. Well, thank you very much for bringing this issue to our conversation. Uh, I said, Pleasure to talk about your just recently published book. As you see, uh, Diplomas for Professionals and Everyone. That's uh, quite an inter it seems to be quite an interesting combination. Usually, perhaps uh, it's not a usual thing to combine two perspectives. So professional perspective, it's a professional. Uh, but when you talk about diplomacy for everyone, this is, gives uh, quite a different perspective. But I believe this book, I hope, would be interesting for professional diplomats, for those who study diplomacy, uh, those who are interested in diplomacy, and for everyone who want to practice some diplomacy, some kinds of diplomacy, bring some diplomatic ideas and diplomatic uh, how to say, methods to their social life, to everyday situation, to social interactions. So I strongly believe that uh, there is not only international, traditional diplomacy, which is mostly politically motivated. Of course, uh, international diplomacy may have different uh, driving forces or imperatives. So uh, interest-based or political imperatives, social imperatives, relationship imperative, which is relationship or moral imperatives. So uh, value-based, uh, it could be all uh, legal imperatives, uh, rights-based. But uh, when, but uh, traditional diplomacy is mostly about politics. It's a part of foreign policy, international politics. Uh, 
But when we talk about uh, diplomacy for wider audience, for everybody, for social diplomacy, here uh, the first thing is it is a focus on engagement, interaction, relationship building, because social is essentially it is about interaction, engagement, connections, relationship building. So uh, I was talking about in this book about uh, the essence, methods, uh, for functions and uh, uh, many other aspects of traditional diplomacy, but at the same time comparing this with social diplomacy. The interesting things just recently happened and happening in diplomatic studies, which is diplomacy now, a lot of diplomatic scholars consider diplomacy not just as a kind of political instrument of the states, but as a social practice. So uh, I call this as a social turn in diplomatic studies. So we could, uh, for many years, most scholars approach diploma, diplomas from historical perspectives or from political perspectives as a kind of tool in international politics. But we could look at diplomacy as a social practice. So as an instrument of uh, which could help us to live peacefully, to exist with others, and it, which could be practiced not just by states, but any, by any social actors like individuals, companies, organizations, groups, states, and they uh, combinations. Yeah. So this is about these kinds of diplomacies as well, social diplomacy, in our everyday life, in our social life, and political diplomacy. And of course, uh, one of my conclusions that uh, these kinds of, diploma of diplomacies could learn from each other. Of course, uh, international traditional diplomacy uh, accumulated a very huge uh, experience, very uh, important some uh, things we could learn from it. But uh, traditional or professional diplomats also could learn from good diplomats in social life. Perhaps we all know some people who could deserve to be called as a very good diplomat in uh, just everyday situations. Of course, uh, they could also, professions could learn from everyday people's social uh, interactions. <laughs> Alishar, speaking of learning, I was wondering, you know, um, how to become a great, uh, a great social diplomat. Yes, uh, based on the wealth of your experience as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a diplomat, active diplomat yourself, yes, and as a negotiation professor, someone who teaches others how to negotiate well. What are the, what are the bases? What are the key success factors for, uh, for everyday social diplomats? Right. Well, uh, a few things uh, I would like to point to. Number one, uh, usually traditionally we consider, we consider diplomacy as a mission. So we use uh, this word quite often in traditional diplomacy, like uh, some country could send to other country a mission or embassy as a mission, diplomatic mission. So, or even in history, in 
many, many thousands of years ago, one ruler could send a mission, diplomatic mission to another ruler. So it could be trade mission, which also at the same time accomplished diplomatic uh, mission. So uh, as far as social diplomacy for at individual level, so we also could consider uh, social diplomacy as a kind of mission. It is a goodwill mission. So in order to be a good social diplomat, you need to take up this mission of goodwill. So it's a very important to have this aspirational aspect of this diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy is a peaceful endeavor. It is a mission which uh, help others and yourself to live peacefully, uh, to, to coexist. So uh, if you think that you are ready to take this mission, you want to take up this mission, you become a good, great social diplomat. That's the beginning. Uh, you need to consider this as a mission, but it's not enough. Mission is a good thing, but uh, you also need to have a, a diplomacy is about engagement. You need to engage. So engagement, no diplomacy could happen without engagement, but not uh, any kinds of engagement. War is also engagement, but with a diplomacy, uh, different engagement. It is a constructive engagement. You have to construct something. So construction here is a result, it's a social good. So when we talk about social diplomacy, it's a mission based on constructive engagement and uh, dialogical interaction, which aims to create some social good. But mostly here we talk about relationship, relationship building. Uh, in case of uh, traditional diplomacy, it, uh, it is related to governance, power, power distribution. It's a part of political uh, whole uh, activity, political uh, sphere. But here, uh, first of all, it takes care about relationship. So it doesn't matter who you are. Maybe you are a bad guy, but I'd like to understand you. I'd like to listen to you. I'd like to engage uh, with you in conversation. So to, to, to know your uh, mindset, so to set up some relationship. And this may help not only to create some working or good personal relationship, but to resolve problems, to solve problems, to resolve a conflict, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the interesting differences, in my opinion, between traditional diplomacy and social diplomacy, in traditional diplomacy, Negotiation is one of the main instruments. Perhaps it's a, the main, it's essence. It's the core of uh, traditional diplomacy. So when we say diplomacy, it is about uh, negotiation. So it is, I call it, uh, it seems in my book, I consider two the so-called mega functions of traditional diplomacy. One is negotiation. The second is representation. So anything uh, traditional diplomats, especially ambassadors do, it is related to negotiation. Sometimes not just to negotiation, I consider negotiation more explicit process with structure, but uh, to bargaining. You may not always negotiate, but you always bargain as a diplomat. 
But uh, when we go to social diplomacy, it is not just negotiation. Negotiation could take part, it could, may have a role, but the much more important thing is conversation. So conversation becomes the main instrument of social diplomacy, relationship building instrument. So you have to be good uh, conversationalist. As in case of traditional diplomacy, you have to be a good uh, negotiator. So, but all, of course, uh, when we talk about dialogical interaction, as I mentioned earlier, uh, so I usually could point to several elements of this dialogical interactions, like conversation, as we already discussed, negotiation, and rhetoric, and also debate. So if I would like to have some debate with you or just speak publicly, but do it as a part of my dialogue with you, not just one-sided, I talk, you listen. No, it's a part of our dialogue. In this case, it could be part of dialogical uh, interaction. But again, the most important uh, instrument of social diplomacy or everyday diplomacy, uh, it is uh, conversation. <laughs> that's uh, that's super interesting, and uh, I've been listening very carefully to um, uh, right. to um, to the extract of um, of the key success factors in so social diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I was wondering why nobody teaches our kids, you know, how to become great conversationalists. Right? It right. seems it seems it seems that uh, that the, the education system just assumes blindly that uh, uh, it's there but it isn't right this is a skill something that we can learn right uh, what's your ex what is your experience with uh, with conversationalists are those people who have the talent natural talent to do that or is it possible for anyone uh, just uh, for, for 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 any one of us to learn how to become a good social diplomat and a good conversationalist well, uh, uh, first, uh, I fully agree with you about uh, learning some important things or not learning some important things uh, at school or even at university. So I could widen this list and uh, put some other very important stuff like career planning, just breathing, relaxation, meditation, all these things are very important in life. And, but unfortunately, uh, no school teach us uh, while they're teaching some maybe not very important things uh, at the same time. So of course, conversation and of course, negotiation as well are very, very important life skills. So not just for diplomats, uh, traditional or social diploma, but for everyone. So, uh, and uh, unfortunately we don't teach, but interestingly, you know, I uh, consider myself as a constructivist, social constructivist. So when you approach to education, to your classes, to your interaction with students as a social construction, it inevitably becomes a, a part of um, conversational learning. So you are not up above of your students and teach them something from your high. 
So you are entering in conversation, you are learning from your students and they are learning from you, you're learning together. That's a part of conversation. So uh, education itself could be a part of conversation. Uh, and uh, constructivist approach to education, it's like just uh, approach to as a, as a uh, conversation, this. As far as uh, uh, could people learn uh, some born uh, extremely good uh, genius conversationals, that's uh, perhaps a very interesting rhetoric question. Of course, we could see in real life some very, very nice conversationals. When I teach some classes about conversation, I usually ask my students, could you put down a few people who you think they're great conversationalists? Always, always anybody could put at least few people. They consider absolutely wonderful conversationalists. It may be their parents or some relatives or friends, etc. But everybody know there are a lot of very good conversationalists in our life. So uh, not because they want to be conversational, but become because it is a nice skill. It's a nice feeling. It's a, you could create some social good through conversation. So, but uh, at the same time, of course, it could be a part of learning process. You could teach, you could learn conversation, especially when you put it like uh, you need to have an uh, aspiration, some goodwill, uh, not just conversational kind of Machiavellical, I do conversation, but uh, my thought and my aim is a little different. So uh, I sometimes I take my student to bazaar to do some negotiation trainings. I ask them usually to do three exercises in bazaar. They bring a little money. One first exercise, I ask them to get some bargaining and buy something, a little stuff like an apple or something like that. Usually it's a typical bargaining. Sellers say one price, uh, buyers say one other price, and they uh, somehow come to middle and get a deal. Second, I ask them to start from very, very unexpectedly, extremely low price. That's a very unpleasant experience. Sellers uh, become very uh, furious. They say very bad things. Usually when they say, for example, for 10,000 something. And uh, these guys say, well, one uh, song, or very one penny or one cent. It's, uh, they become crazy. Uh, but uh, I do this because uh, I like to students to get some experience of this. And usually they very rarely come to conclusion, but after that, that's a one-time experience. After they don't want to each, they don't want to see each other. They turn uh, back to each other. That's it. That's a one-time deal. And third uh, exercise, I like to them to see that you may win, but you will lose a person. You will never get any relationship with him further. But most interesting, the most powerful experience they get when I ask them, don't do any bargaining. Just set up people-to-people -people relationship. 
try to understand, get some conversation with the sellers. You know, uh, not everybody will like to do, but some of them uh, do this very with very pleasure, uh, uh, pleasure, these uh, sellers, because uh, very few people approach them as a uh, from conversation point of view, as a person, they uh, see them as a seller. So we need to struggle to do some haggling. But here, don't uh, lie. Don't be manipulative. Don't think about uh, buying something, selling something. Just do some nice people-to-people conversation. Try to understand. Try to feel. You need you know what happens usually, it's fantastic. In most cases, these people are giving something to students. They don't ask them to give something. Take two kilo of my apple. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I have my nephew, uh, nephew as, a, uh, as, a, as you, a student. I'd like to help you. No, 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 I don't want to buy something. I just uh, want to say hello to you. Uh, just have a little conversation. So they feel very appreciation, very big happiness. They are ready to return something, the investment to people-to-people relationship. So even in bazaar, in a haggling place, so you may manage to have some people-to-people relationship Without anything, and that gives that uh, gives some very powerful feeling. So uh, you could learn even in bazaar to set up some uh, human relationship and just have a good conversation without negotiation, without bargaining, without haggling. Alisher, thank you so much for your inspiration. Um, my business school is located very close to a uh, bazaar, and. Uh, um, I'm very much tempted to, um, I will be teaching in two weeks, I'm very much tempted to send uh, these students um, over across the street and uh, and um, and make them negotiate. But speaking of, uh, of conversations, conversationalists and storytelling, uh, I think um, you, you've shared in one of our earlier conversations, you've shared uh, that... Uh, uh, that you used to teach a course on uh, on negotiation and fairy tales, or right. negotiating in fairy tales. Right, right. I I cannot f- finish this uh, this podcast episode without asking you at least one question about this course. What can we learn about negotiation from fairy tales? Right. Well, uh, first, uh, of course, we could see negotiation everywhere. Uh, as a negotiation professor, uh, you know uh, this very well. So everywhere, so at home, at street, at the office, etc., uh, etc. Et but the, one of the very, very interesting area to study negotiation, it's uh, fairy tales, it's legends, myth. So part of my course was, uh, I taught it several times, to psychology students, uh, negotiation in myth, in legends and fairy tales. So, and uh, you know, uh, we've learned a lot. And I was myself quite surprised to learn very interesting things from just uh, children's uh, books, 
fairy tales, uh, folk stories. So, you know, one of the most uh, striking part of uh, studying these fairy tales from negotiation perspective is that, so uh, on the one hand, as a negotiation professors, of course, we teach win-win approaches, some nice ideas, bringing some uh, niceness to uh, social good, as I just uh, myself described before. All these things, all these ideas are very nice and, of course, uh, very constructive. And we need to continue pushing towards these kinds of good uh, direction of negotiation practices and theories. But very interesting and quite unexpected thing for me was that in many, many fairy tales, you could, most negotiations are distributive negotiations. One side wins, the other side loses. So, uh, uh, that uh, was quite uh, surprising for me. Even one of my students, she said, well, uh, now I would be very careful to give uh, to my children fairy, uh, fairy tale books because uh, I see that uh, in most cases, these people who have cunning, who is uh, with wit, with uh, strategem, strategemic approach, as uh, we may also say, and uh, also smartness, but not just with a good heart and uh, all the things. They win. So why, uh, why especially cunning yes, uh, is so huge in uh, fairy tale negotiations? I was myself quite a little bit surprised. Why are we are giving all the stories to our children and we think that uh, they're learning some nice things. So, but uh, in most cases, it's uh, uh, just a personage with uh, nice canning skills uh, winning in many stories. Does then, it mean, Alisher, that we have right. to write new fairy tales with win-win no, no, no. and principle-based no, 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 approach? No, 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 no. Uh, the thing, it seems to me a little bit different. The thing is, we need to, even in reading cunning, wit, we need, be, we need to be very careful and put it in a uh, much more, how to say, sensitive, more culturally uh, rich background. So when you say just cunning, uh, it is like something not very nice thing. But uh, when people like Nasreddin Afande, Hoja Afande, who is a very big uh, folk uh, hero in many uh, Eastern countries, like in Uzbekistan, we consider him, we like him very much. He is a hero. And he is a, one of the, the absolutely fantastic negotiators. And he used quite often uh, his, not just his creativity, his ability to solve problems, his uh, fantastic wit, uh, all the things, but cunning as well. So how this? But in order to understand this, why people like him, in order to understand it, you need to put in a social context. 
uh, when he uses or some other heroes from uh, fairy tales uses against whom they use what kinds of some element very tiny little aspect of this uh, canny uh, happens there so when we are more careful we need to understand well first life is very complicated in life we may see many many not pleasant situations there are so many people who are ready to uh, apply some uh, manipulative approaches you have to be very careful you have to be prepared you have to have a wit you have to have uh, some skills to uh, stop them to against the plot all the thing so in this context this fairy tale stories become some uh, they have some positive very elements as well not it is just about cunning about some deception but it is for making some social good but also they teach uh, not just perhaps many negotiation professors like uh, consider life from this uh, win-win point of view they teach us that in life there are many, many situations you have to be very careful. There are a lot of people who uh, want to uh, deceive you, want to apply to you some very not nice things. You have to learn this. And fairy tales teach us these things. And that's, they are very good resources, sources of learning negotiation, real life negotiation. They are representing real life. Not just uh, kind of, uh, it's a nice thing. Yes, uh, thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, uh, definitely have to look uh, a little bit deeper into it. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, super glad that you've mentioned Hoja Nasruddin. He is right. the hero of my youth. Yeah. Oh. I uh, I read all um, all stories or books uh, that I could access in uh, in, in my library growing up. Uh, I uh, completely understand the fascination of uh of uh, many nations with him and uh, and his legacy um, but when we think about people like him great skillful negotiators yes uh, um, <clears throat> given that uh, what you've experienced so far in, in diplomacy but also in research and teaching um, mm -hmm. the negotiation and diplomacy and also a psychology right you're a psychologist by training um, um, if you were to name great negotiators, skillful, skillful, skilled negotiators, who comes to your mind? Well, uh, of course, again, uh, there are so many of them. Um, most uh, distinguished diplomats, uh, of course, uh, became distinguished because they have a very good negotiation skills. And of course, uh, if you we consider not just every negotiator, business negotiations, or everyday negotiations, but diplomatic negotiations in traditional diplomacy, uh, sometimes we could consider some big names like uh, Prince Tolerant, so as a big names. But I'm a little um, skeptical about uh, these kinds of. They may be absolutely wonderful as a um, negotiator, skillful. But uh, some of them uh, may use a lot of this uh, uh, 
how to say, Machiavellistic approach, manipulative approach. That's not, uh, uh, they're not my heroes. So from this point of view, of course, uh, we have to be very careful uh, to name someone, but uh, just to name few, maybe one or two persons uh, who uh, I admire as a negotiation professionals. For example, I could name Lahdar Brahimi, who was, uh, uh, perhaps many people know, he was, uh, he was awarded in, I believe, 2002 by program of uh, negotiation of uh, Harvard University, the title of award of great negotiator. So he was a United Nations uh, envoy to Syria, to Afghanistan, and uh, quite a, a few places. But even as, a, again, uh, the specifics of negotiation, diplomatic negotiation is that you may be great negotiator yourself, but you are acting in a very complex environment where so many stakeholders, so many big forces are involved. So even, for example, Lahdar Brahimi didn't achieve much in Syria or in Afghanistan, but I self, uh, myself, I consider him as a great negotiator, as a, one of the most skilled negotiators, because I observed him in several situations. How does he do negotiation? First, it's not just, um, it is he, how to say, he skillfully use his body language, sensitivity, so tone of voice, uh, all your body language, face expressions, your attentiveness, and uh, softness, external softness, but internal uh, toughness. So you need to be, as a diplomatic negotiator, sometimes externally soft, but internally tough. So uh, experience and uh, combining some nice stuff from the West, uh, Western approach to be more direct and Eastern approach to be a little bit more flattery, uh, more non-direct. So all the things, I think uh, he was able very skillfully combine. So for me, he is one of the very, very, very skillful and distinguished diplomatic negotiator. I, I think my, it's my opinion. Alisha, thank you so much for sharing your uh, wisdom, your experience. Uh, I think um, um, I learned a lot from you. Uh, uh, first of all, we're all negotiators and social context uh, is not much different uh, than a diplomatic context, uh, right? We still, we still need, to, need to find our way, um, how to coexist peacefully despite differences in our preferences. Right. I, learned, uh, I learned also a, a lot about, uh, about uh, what is important uh, in those uh, uh, becoming, um, uh, for becoming great um, social diplomat uh, become it means becoming great conversationalist becoming great negotiator but i also learned that i have to look at uh, the fairy tales of my kids and uh, look for negotiation settings uh, thank you uh, so much alisher for being with us today it was a great pleasure to host you and that's it for today thank you so much for being with us uh, um, and until next time on the podcast on negotiation thank you well, thank you very much, Remy, for invitation and a great conversation. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.